Uh, one of Paul's great concerns in the book of Colossians is that, um, that we are not taken captive by philosophies that are not in accordance with Christ. Uh, ways of thinking, ways of viewing the world that don't fit with the gospel and that are not uh, in accordance with the scriptures. They, they don't follow logically from what the Bible teaches. Uh, he's given instructions to this end. Uh, he has uh, his concern in chapter 2, towards the end of chapter 2, as we saw, uh, was they're their being taken in by various philosophies that, uh, that are not in accordance with Christ. And, um, and, 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 then he, and some of those had to do with the specifics of how the Christian life is lived, things like asceticism, keeping the old covenant ceremonial law, and so on. And then as we get into chapter 3, then he begins to set it straight. Uh, to explain how sanctification works, how the Christian life is to be lived, how we should think of it. You know, as those who've been forgiven much by God's grace, have been, have been united to Christ by faith, we now are to live and pursue the things of the Lord, things that are in keeping with Christ, uh, as those who've been freed. This is not some sort of asceticism where we're trying to whip ourselves and, and, and make ourselves appealing to God so that he might accept us and so on. So, uh, so he's been very concerned about that all of life would be in accordance with Christ, that we would understand the gospel and live in light of it um, correctly. And he's given us in chapter 3 a number of specific things, uh, things that we are to put to death, sinful things we're to put to death, and uh, righteous virtues that we are to clothe ourselves with. And as we've noted, this work is done by individual Christians, um, but it is also True that Paul has in mind the church as a whole as he addresses uh, the Colossians and by extension us as well. And now as we get into verse 18, Paul begins to now address the home, the Christian household. And so this is a new section, um, but in many ways it's just as continuing Paul's concern, Paul's thought. As we saw last week, his concern was that uh, we would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And now he takes that and he's going to now apply this to our households. And so since all of life is to be lived in accordance with Christ and keeping with the word of truth, then that means the Christian household is to be ordered according to God's design. That's what Paul wants here. The Christian home to be ordered according to God's design. Uh, the home is simply not something we can afford to neglect. Uh, it's not something where we can afford to just go along with errant philosophies, with whatever happens to be the dominant thinking of our age. Uh, truly, and I mean truly, our world today uh, has really no concept of family. They really are just so far off on this. In, in fact, the, the family has been under assault for many years. The whole concept of the family. Uh, for example, in 1971, uh, there's the Gay Liberation Manifesto, which said equality is never going to be enough. What is needed is a total reordering of civilization, including society's most basic institution, the patriarchal society which among other things would certainly include uh, the nuclear family. Whether it's in the news or in schools or in popular culture, including kids' movies, 
The family is denigrated, destroyed, even, even viewed as part of the problem in Western civilization. This male dominance, monogamism, marriage, heterosexuality, these things are part of the problem. These norms are part of how the powerful in the West maintain their power. And so it needs to be torn down. We've talked about this at other times, but this is such that even an organization like Black Lives Matter, they, they say in their what we believe statement on their website, just seemingly completely out of place, uh, we disrupt the nuclear family. They, they like what you would think uh, solid families would be helpful. Uh, and they say, no, we want to destroy the nuclear family. The family is, is under attack in places we wouldn't necessarily expect it in sometimes overt ways and other times subtle ways. And we can, as believers, in even sometimes subtle ways, begin to imbibe the spirit of the age and drift from that which is in accordance with Christ as it pertains to family. So in our roles as husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and in children and in our expectations of children, all of these things, we can quite easily drift from what the scriptures teach. And I think we, we notice that, particularly as we read what Paul writes and we read what the scriptures say, and at many times we, we start to cringe because we can feel how, how people would not be pleased if we were to say this out loud somewhere in public. But that is further a sign of our own fallenness, of our own sinfulness. When we come up against God's word and it grates upon us, though it's clear uh, that that's a sign of our own need to conform to what the Word of God says. So with that in mind, let's go to chapter 3 of Colossians. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. Uh, we're going to go to verse 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So Paul transitions here, begins to address uh, the, the household, the Christian home. And he begins here in verse 18 with a word for wives. A word for wives. So verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So we might as well just begin with something that outright offends modern sensibilities. Uh, verse 18 does just that. Now, of course, the scriptures teach that Christian men and women are equal before the Lord. In terms of our standing, we are equals in value and worth. Uh, so why Paul will say in Galatians 3 that there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. He's talking about as we are brothers and sisters before the Lord, there's, this does not, he's not teaching that men are greater, better, or anything like that. There's no greater value placed upon men over women or vice versa. But nevertheless, God has given to husbands and to wives different roles in the home. The husband is appointed by God to be the head of the house and to be the head of his wife. He is to lead in his home. This is, this is implied by this command to submit to your husbands. And so men are to lead, be the heads of their homes, and wives are called to submit to their husbands. The wife's role is one of helper. 
This is the way that it was at creation. You remember Genesis chapter 2. So this is before sin enters into the world. Uh, Eve is created to be a suitable helper to Adam. Right As Adam is called to take dominion and go out from the garden and spread the glory of God across the earth, which of course we know he fails to do in, in his sin, uh, Eve is created to be his helpmate in this. This was part of the good creation. In fact, in 1 Timothy uh, 2.13, Paul there is talking about uh, men and women's roles within the church and how eldership is to be for men and so on. And he argues, in his argument there, he reveals that this creation order, this creation arrangement was good and it was intentional and that it remains in effect. Arguing from creation that man was formed first, Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is one of the reasons why he is saying there that uh, eldership, for example, is to be for men. Men are to lead in the homes, as we're seeing here, and also in church as well. So, one of the things this tells us is this is not a culturally bound command. It transcends culture, this command for wives to be submissive to their husbands. Uh, Some will often try to dismiss this because they think, well, that was cultural expectations of the first century, and and, and, um, Paul's just telling them not to try to upset that, and so they're to go along with it. But the problem with that, well, there's a number, but one of them is the fact that uh, this is rooted in creation, in the order of creation, the very purpose of creating a a woman to to complement man. Ephesians 5.22 fills out this call to submission. There, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Notice this comparison. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So this submission of a wife to her husband is likened to the church's submission to Christ, which I think is probably something to just let settle for a moment. Here in Colossians 3, submission is said to be fitting in the Lord. That is, it's appropriate and right for a Christian woman to submit to her husband. Notice here, the appeal is not to culture, but to Christ. It is fitting in the Lord. That is, it's proper for these women who belong to the Lord and who are in the Lord's service to submit to their husbands. He's appealing to being a Christian, not to, you know, we're just trying to appease the culture. Others understand the phrase as, as is fitting in the Lord to be a reference to the limitation of submission. That is, that wives are to submit to their husbands so long as their submission is consistent with being a Christian. Meaning that if a wife was being commanded to sin or something by her husband, then she should not obey that. She should not submit to that. Uh, So one might imagine a a pagan husband with a Christian wife in the first century wanting her to trying to get her to come worship with him at his pagan temple. and, and, And that would not be fitting sort of submission. And so the wife should not submit to such. Well, even if uh, even if that's not exactly what Paul has in mind here, we know that that is still true. Right. Submission in the scriptures uh, does not mean that we go along when someone in authority over us is trying to get us to do sin, right? to do something wrong. We see many examples of that in Scripture. I think that's understood here. 
So if you think back again to Genesis, uh, part of the curse that is placed upon men and women for sin uh, in Genesis 3.16, this is, what, this is what God says to Eve. He says to her that your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband. Uh, there's some debate about what does that mean that your desire is for your husband, but I think the next chapter, I think, helps us understand this. So the next chapter, Genesis 4, Cain there is angry with his brother. You know the story. He's angry with his brother and God warns him. And he says in almost the exact same language that sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. So he's, he's saying there that desire for means desiring to subjugate, to master. That's what sin's wanting, right? It wants to consume Cain and master him. So I think that's the idea. Genesis 3, 16 then is informing us that there's going to be conflict between husband and wife. There's going to be battle. And so we learn from this that submission, I, think, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised by this, is not natural to us. It is part of the curse. Submission is not something that we just, yay, submission. I think we know this. And so for wives, it's going to be something you will need to fight for. Your husband will not always make this easy for you. You know that. We all know that. We'll get to husbands in a moment, but this doesn't change the, the call here. So there, there's many things submission can mean, but it certainly it would include, first of all, uh, seeking a heart that rejoices in a calm and peaceable or quiet submission and the role of helping. We know that when the scriptures, uh, the scriptures deal with the heart, right? God's not just interested in some sort of external conformity, so we just kind of grudgingly go along with it, right? That's not what God's calling wives to. All true obedience gets to the heart. And so you, it's right to then seek to desire a submissiveness to your husband, to understand, to see that it is God's good design, even regardless of whatever, you know, you're being told everywhere else. God's word says that this is what he commands of wives, what is fitting for Christian wives. Again, submission means not trying to take over leadership or manipulate your husband's decisions. It means supporting and helping your husband to lead and, and make those decisions. And in cases where he's failing to do that, I think it does also mean reminding him of his duties. It can be done in a kind and gentle way, most certainly. It is seeking to be a support to your husband in his various tasks. Here's what 1 Peter 3, 4 says of wives. He says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That's not considered precious in our world, is it? That's not valued. But Peter goes on, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Notice, in ages past, in different cultures, He's saying it's not a culturally bound thing. This has always been the way godly women have 
have adorned themselves, he says, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, this is not, this is not talking about uh, being weak. Women are, are just weak. No, not, he adds there to not fear that which is frightening. There can, there's absolutely a courage to this. This is not suggesting anything that women are just are weak and that's why they need this. That's not the point. That's not what he's saying. But do hear what God calls precious. A gentle and quiet spirit. This is very precious in God's sight. So the sinful world may rage at this, but God calls this good. So we have a word for women or for wives. Uh, But now we go to verse 19 and we see a word for husbands. So in verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The temptation for anyone who's in authority is to lord it over them. This is what Jesus told us the Gentiles do. Uh, Unbelievers do this. They want to lord it over people when they have authority. Jesus is saying in the context there, that's not the way it works in the church. And that's also not the way it works in the family, in the home. So there's two commands here for husbands. The first is to love your wives. In the parallel passage of Ephesians 5, which we read earlier, this love is spelled out in more detail. I'm not going to read it all over again here, but I'm certain that that is also what Paul has in mind here as he just very briefly says, love your wives. But in Ephesians 5, we see a little more. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her. So the husband's love then is to be a Christ-like love, a love that is sacrificial, a love that seeks the good of your wife. It is not some self-serving tyranny. Furthermore, with Christ's death being in order to sanctify the church, as this being a model for husband's love, I think it's right to say that your love, men, for your wives ought to be driven by a concern for her good in all things and perhaps most especially for her holiness, that she would grow in the Lord. The command is to love with a Christ-like love. It is the highest possible kind of love, the greatest possible kind of love, self-giving. There's nothing, there's no higher bar than that. The second command given here is to not be harsh with them. Again, this temptation is not hard to imagine. A man could quite easily, in many cases, throw his weight around uh, physically and emotionally in other ways as well and be a tyrant in his house. This is not the way it is to be. This is not in keeping with Christ. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And when he calls women their weaker vessels, he's talking about the general physical differences between men and women, a statement that frankly was not controversial for most of human history, just a reality. We pretend that's not true today, And I think we can all see the ridiculousness of it. 
But Paul, Paul, or Peter mentions there, 1 Peter 3, the weaker vessel is to be treated with greater care. As something precious. This doesn't mean they're emotionally always weak or something like that, but they're to be treated with greater care. It's not for men to intimidate and oppress their wives, but rather to honor them, to value them, esteem them, love them as Christ the church. And so there's many ways that men, you could be tempted to be harsh. So let this bring correction to you. And as you consider the, the command to love your wives as Christ loves the church, again, there's so many different ways that that can apply. Just a couple of remarks. First, this command requires you to make war on your selfishness. Again, Christ's love is a love of service. Our model is the highest love there is. And so, uh, it's going to require continual dying to self, continual seeking to put on loving kindness and patience and, and, and concern for your wife ahead of yourself as a major part of your leadership, characterizing your, your home, your love for your wife. And again, this is, not fa- this is not natural to fall in human nature, so it's going to require a battle with the flesh. Secondly, I think implied in this is you can help your wife's submission to be sweet. I trust you see the challenge before your wife. You can greatly aid her in her role by loving her and not being harsh with her, being sensitive. If you lead as this calls you to, it's going to help her greatly. Now, your wife's submission is not dependent on you always getting it right. It's not dependent on you being perfect. But if you are seeking to love your wife as Christ the church, it will certainly help her. Tied to this, uh, since she is called to submission, I would just suggest not placing unreasonable expectations on your wife or arbitrary demands or so on. Again, I think this is just part of of loving your wife. And and then one just one last kind of implication from this here before moving on. Um, Verses 18 and 19, I think, again, this requires you, men, fathers, husbands, to take the lead in your home. That's implied in this. Do not abdicate this role. Uh, there are certainly times when you know, a wife might rise up to try to t- kind of take over or seize headship or whatever. But other times, it's simply thrown back upon her by a man who doesn't want to lead, who won't take his role seriously. Again, the assumption here, and it's plainly stated elsewhere, is that husbands indeed lead and do so with love and with gentleness. So we have a word for wives and for husbands, and now we have, uh, in verse 20, a word for children. Children. So I want all the kids uh, to, to listen up now. If you were dozing or distracted, uh, now's a good time to, to, to tune back in. And hear this out because the Bible is going to address you now very directly, right? It addressed wives, it addressed uh, husbands, and now here's what it says in verse 20. Children, children, obey your parents in everything 
For this pleases the Lord. So in, in what things does the Bible tell you to obey your parents? Does he say when, when you want to? Does he say obey your parents when it's something that you like? Go get the chips. Okay. No, he says obey your parents in everything. In everything. For this pleases the Lord. That's a lot of things, isn't it? Everything. In fact, really the only thing outside of this is if your parents are trying to involve you in sin or get you to sin. But otherwise, God says obey them. And I'm sorry, but going to bed is not sin. They're not trying to engage you in sin. So, kids, you need to understand just how important this matter is to God. Your parents, they aren't telling you what to do because they are so mean or because they're just filled with some sort of strange desire for power and they just love to boss you around or whatever. This is not it. That could happen. Uh, I trust that's not true here. Uh, but but either what, what God is saying here is that he is the one who has given this authority to your parents. This is really important because what that means is when you disobey your parents, that is actually sin. That is actually disobeying God because he's the one who put your parents in charge over you. So it's a far more serious thing to disobey your parents than just to incur the anger of mom or dad because Disobeying parents is actually sin before God. So when your parents tell you to do something, God says you should do it. Sometimes you might think, well, it's no big deal. You just kind of think it's even funny. You kind of run off and do your own thing or you just decide to disregard it or whatever it might be. It's not a funny issue, though. It's not cute. When you, your parents tell you to do something and you just choose not to for whatever reason, you really are communicating to God that you're not concerned with what he says because he's the one who says, obey your parents. Your job, kids, as God calls you to do it, most of the time when the Bible addresses you children, guess what it's telling you to do? Honor, obey your parents. The reality is, kids, you are not the boss in your home. Your parents do not need to explain everything to you. I think it's fair, especially as you get a little older, if there's confusion about something, uh, I think it's fair to nicely and politely ask why. I think that can be done. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you need clarification on a matter or why something's being done, you can do that respectfully, but your parents can also answer, because I said so. That is a completely legitimate answer for a parent to say. Now, parents, obviously, we can help. Uh, if we can see they're being confused, maybe give them context to why you're asking them the thing you're doing. That can be very helpful uh, and, and settle a, a child, certainly. But a lot of the time, the why question is coming from a place of, I don't want to do this. I'd like you to do this. Why? Okay, so, so again... Because I said so is valid. God says, obey your parents in everything. He doesn't say only if you get a why answer that is satisfactory to you. 
Complaining. Complaining when they tell you to do something. This is not honoring to your parents. Trying to manipulate them is disobedience. If you don't know what manipulating is, it's where you try to get your parents to do the thing that you want them to do. Through different ways of trying to be crafty. One example might be, you ask mom a question, you'd like to do something, she says no. So without saying anything more to her, you go to dad now and you try your chances with dad. You ask dad the same question. Mom has already said no, now you're going to dad to try and get you know, mom and dad to maybe disagree, get dad to do it, and then I can do it. Mom says, why? Well, dad said I could. You've, you've, you know, you've disobeyed your mom is what you've done. Nagging and begging. You know, the answer has come back, no. Well, why? And on and on and on with begging and why, why? Trying to wear your parents down. This is not obedience. And this is a reality that is so so poorly understood, this, this place of kids in the home to obey their parents. We, as parents, often think that this is, is a, um, really a mean and cruel demand of our kids. They give that look, and we think, oh, wow, you know, if I, if I really make them obey me, then they're going to be upset. Their puppy dog eyes seem to overrule this. Uh, we, we sometimes can imbibe this thinking or believe that Disney is right, that parents are the fools, that kids are always the ones who get it right and need to instruct dad in what you know, life's really about. That's over and over again. Almost every movie is like that. So kids, you need to understand how sinful it is before God for you to disobey your parents. And if I were to ask you, how often you've done that. I don't want you to say it out loud. I don't even want you to try and guess, but, but just think about it for a second. How often have you disobeyed your parents? It's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. And the fact is, that is a serious issue. And what does this reveal? This reveals that you are a sinner before God. And it is a lesson to you as to why it is that you need a Savior. Why you need a Savior who will forgive your sins. Because even as young people, you have sinned many times before God. Even though you've not gone off into the world yet to do all kinds of crazy, big and bad sins, you've still disobeyed your parents. And this is why you need the Lord Jesus, who never sinned, never disobeyed his parents. Did you know that? Not once. He never sinned once. And being God in human flesh, he went to the cross to die for the sins of others. Not his own sins, but for the sins of others. And he rose again from the dead. And so all who confess their sins to God, whatever those sins might be, the disobedience of parents and so on, all who confess their sins to God, repent of that, trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will be forgiven of your sins. All those sins forgiven, washed clean. And so if you know, kids, you're guilty before God because you know you've, you've sinned many times, then confess your sin to him. 
Acknowledge it to him. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Believe that he died for sinners, to save sinners. That he alone has righteousness that you need, that he will give you as a gift to cover you, to cover over your sins. And then as you trust in the Lord Jesus and you continue to try to live your life in accordance with Christ and in keeping with the gospel and you find yourself still struggling and you find that you've disobeyed mom and dad again, then again, as often as you do, you confess that to Christ, you confess that to God as sin, and you trust again, you just remember, Jesus died for sinners. I've proven yet again why I need his forgiveness. He is your only hope of salvation today and every day of your life. Parents, this text is a good reminder of a few additional things as well. Uh, One of them is that the standard in your home has to be obedience in everything. That's what what God says here is is, is his expectation of children, his demands of children. This is what the law says. Children are to obey in everything. If this is God's standard, then it has to be your standard. Yes, you know they're going to fall short. So you can do this with grace. You can have much sympathy and empathy and patience with them. That's all good and right. But this is God's standard, and we don't have the right to lessen it. If we lessen God's law, Christ said, you're least in the kingdom of heaven. We don't want to lessen it. So whether you're telling them to do something moral, like stop you know, hitting your sibling and be kind to them. Or whether it's something indifferent, like get ready for bed now. The expectation should be obedience now. You will not serve your kids by lowering the standard beneath God's. Additionally, disobedience needs to be consistently disciplined with real consequences. This is maybe one of the most important biblical parenting principles in all of Scripture. Just saying no or just telling someone your child their behavior is wrong, uh, this simply isn't enough. The Bible teaches this. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Without discipline, you hate your child, God says. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Diligent in it. So we're called to uphold God's standard and to back it up with discipline. Gospel-centered parenting does not bring the standard down. We understand that unless the heart of the child is changed, he's going to disobey. We understand that. We know that's true. But that should not lead us to the conclusion, therefore, I, don't, I, I, I can't really expect much of them. I, there's not really much I can do. You can uphold God's righteous standard before your child and discipline as often as necessary. Being diligent to discipline, as the scriptures say. The reality is the high standard that is God's law is a schoolmaster to help lead your children to Christ. 
So use it. Don't lessen it. Well, I know they're, they're morally incapable of, of perfection in this, so I'm just going to let things slide. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. The constant discipline teaches your child of their need for Christ. As they learn as they learn that there are consequences for disobeying. So you uphold God's standard in word and with the rod, with discipline, with consequences, and along the way, regularly preach and proclaim the gospel, pointing them to the Savior who forgives the transgressions they've committed. Whatever, there's tons of questions that arise about details, about how and all kinds of questions that arise. We obviously cannot answer all of those now. But I would just encourage you, zoom out a little bit from all the specific details and questions of when this happens, what do I do? And zoom out a little bit, back up, and ask yourself what you're communicating in your home. Do do we just really just discipline when it's really bad or they're on their 10th offense? Or is the general communication here that immediate obedience is expected with whatever the request is? Again, if we, inadvertent, if we just are letting all kinds of things just go by, uh, we can inadvertently lessen God's law, can communicate that those aren't very serious offenses. When God says, obey in everything. So there's a word for, for children. And finally, a word for fathers. In verse 21, Paul writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. It's worth noting that fathers specifically are addressed here. Um, the joke in our home was that mothers are good to go, so they didn't, they didn't, she, mothers didn't need an addressing. But as heads of the household, parenting becomes one of the key areas in which husbands are to lead. This is throughout Scripture. Abraham was to teach his children, and so on. And so again, right away, we're reminded here, men, do not leave this for your wives to just do on their own, to handle it. Lead her in raising your children and setting the tone. Ephesians 6.4, as we read earlier, puts the onus on the fathers to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't neglect this or pass this duty off. Obviously, moms play a huge role in this too, but he addresses fathers here. And so there's a danger behind all of this, and that is to father in such a way as to exasperate and provoke your children such that they become discouraged and lose heart. So, let me just say this. In, in our upholding of God's high standard for our children, God's law of obedience in all things, we want to make sure we do that with love with concern, with mercy, in humility, uh, not in anger and personal offense, with much gospel being also taught, grace held out to the kids. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's wrong for there to be a raised voice, but fleshly anger is wrong. It ought to be that we want to see our children 
under, help them understand that they are sinners before God. That this offense, their disobedience of me is a far more serious thing than just violating my authority or whatever, but it's against God Almighty. So it's important to try and keep that mindset intact. It's important likewise, lest we discourage our children or provoke them to be patient, to encourage them along the way, even as we discipline, to pour out as fathers affection, affection and love on our children, to have them know and understand that we love them unconditionally, though they sin against us all day long. Even as discipline is sometimes constant or feels that way, we tell them, you are still my son, you are still my daughter, and I will always love you. I'm doing this to try to help you understand and to train you and raise you. You are not working for my love. You're not earning my love through your obedience. This is one way that we can communicate grace and love even while upholding a high standard in the home. Right? Sometimes children, parents get upset because young kids, they can't, you can't reason with them. They can't really understand the gospel. And if you're trying, you know, you're swatting their hand or, or, you know, spanking them on the rear end when they disobey. And you, but I just, I don't, I want them to, to understand. I love, them. well, they will, you know, you hug them, you scoop them up, you play with them. You, you all those things communicate your love for them at the same time. Right? They're your children you love them, that will communicate a love for them despite their disobedience. So we uphold God's standard, but also preach gospel, also do the best we can to demonstrate gracious love, not simply badgering them for continually falling short. We need law, yes, we need gospel as well. I wonder how many fathers have withheld affection and approval from their children and how many kids have been crushed by this, desiring, just desiring some measure of affirmation from dad and not getting it and then getting to this point where they're just provoked, they respond in rebellion or they just quit even caring what dad thinks. These things happen. There is temptation for dads to be harsh and continually disapproving. And so be on guard against that, even, even as you uphold God's law, especially as maybe, and, and rightly discipline. Let us strive to do that with a calm and loving demeanor. There are so many ways that we can end up arranging our homes that are not in accordance with Christ. If we're not intentional in these matters, we absolutely will drift that so many of these um, statements in these four verses are sometimes very hard to swallow or seem very radical to us, uh, again, is a sign of our fallenness, of our sinfulness. Let God be true, though every man a liar. His ways are so far above our ways. He does all things well, and he is good. His designs are good. He is not a man that he should have regret. Now it's 2020. I shouldn't have created that way. This is not how God works. Our world thinks they're progressing towards something grand, but we're not. We're deteriorating away 
And so in all of these things, wherever you find you have fallen short, whether it's in your role as a wife or a husband or a dad or as a kid, as a mother, any area, confess it to God. Confess it to him. Renew your mind in the word and take rest in the righteous provision of Christ. And just, just one final word too. Some of you are not yet married, but I assume one day will be or want to be. Um, these are all really important things to, to know in advance as well as you choose a spouse, uh, one that will be compatible with what scripture teaches. As you think about parenting, these are all discussions that you should have before, before getting married. That's, that's much more helpful. <laughs> but anyways, where, where, where you know you've fallen short in any of these ways, uh, confess it to the Lord. Take rest in the righteous provision of Christ for you. And then may you do all that you can to fulfill your roles in your home in accordance with Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that we're not flying completely blind here with what we're to do in our homes. And Father, we confess our sinfulness. We fall short. Uh, Not one of us, not one of us has obeyed you perfectly. All of us have been sinners from the womb. All of us who are now parents disobeyed our parents when we were young. Father, give us humility in our parenting. But may we have the courage to uphold your standard of righteousness in our home. And may we have the grace to to discipline with love. Father, I pray that you would be gracious with our children as we fail so often. May we be quick to remind our children why it is that we as dads and as moms also need forgiveness of our sins. Father, we know that at the end of the day, you save only by your grace and not because of our perfect parenting, and we rejoice in that. Father, we pray that you would do work of salvation in all of our homes with all of our children. Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ that is ours by faith. We thank you for your mercy to us. Father, make us merciful people. Make us gracious parents. Make us gracious and kind husbands and wives. Father, help us as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Help us to be kind in our leadership in the home. Father, I pray that you'd give wives grace to submit to their husbands and even to to rejoice in their role. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us. We pray that you would do good work in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.